being here tonight and providing that great music. And what a great privilege it is to be back with you uh, tonight here uh, for another uh, Monday night, the final Monday night service here at Woodland Hills. And I want to tell you, I look forward to this every year, to be in a church that God is blessing in such a significant way. I hope you who are members here realize what a rare thing this is that is taking place here. The vast majority of churches today are either plateaued or declining, and to have a church like this is something that is just uh, worthy of continually praising God for. And I know you're grateful to God, but I also know you're grateful. Nothing like this happens without great leadership, and Pastor Charles Hunt is one of the greatest pastors I know of anywhere, and I know you thank God for his faithfulness. One of my favorite stories is about the man that was bitten by a dog that was later discovered to have rabies. They rushed the man to the hospital, and it was determined that he, too, had contracted an especially severe case of the dreaded disease. The doctor came in and said to him, Sir, I'm sorry to inform you, your case is incurable and it's terminal. We'll try to make you as comfortable as possible, but I strongly suggest you get your affairs together quickly. Well, the man was stunned. He couldn't believe it. Finally, he summoned the strength to get a piece of paper and a pen and he began writing vigorously. About an hour later, the doctor came back to check on his patient, and the man was still writing. The doctor said, well, I'm glad to see you're getting your will together. The man looked up and said, Doc, this ain't no will. It's a list of all the people I'm going to bite before I die. <laughs> you know, a lot of us carry a list like that around in our mind, don't we? A list of people we'd like to bite or at least get even with before we die. On your list, you might have a friend who has betrayed you. Perhaps a mate who abandoned you. Maybe a church leader who has disappointed you. Have you discovered this truth? You cannot control what other people do to you. Offenses are going to come. Live long enough and you're going to be hurt and disappointed by somebody you care about deeply. You can't control that. But what you can control is your response to those offenses. You can either hold on to those offenses, turn them over in your mind until they metastasize into a tumor of bitterness, or you can choose to let go of those hurts. You can choose to forgive. Now, that's what the word forgive means. It means to release, to let go of. Now, any of us who have been in church for any period of time, we know forgiveness is the preferred response, right? That's easier said than done. Like C.S. Lewis said one time, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have someone to forgive. Why should we let go of rather than hold on to the hurts that have been committed against us? Well, Jesus answered that question and the parable we're going to look at in the few moments we have together tonight. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, as we talk about life's most important choice, the choice to forgive. Matthew chapter 18. 
Now the context for this parable that Jesus told begins in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now we read that and we think, Peter, you dunce. Why, anybody knows you're supposed to forgive an unlimited amount of times. But listen, let's give Peter some credit. He lived in a culture in which forgiveness was not a virtue, it was a vice. It was a sign of weakness. In fact, there was a popular rabbi who taught, if somebody hurts you the first time, forgive. If they wrong you a second time, forgive. If they wrong you a third time, forgive. But if they wrong you a fourth time, refuse to forgive. Three times is the limit, was the popular thinking in Peter's day. So when Peter said, Lord, should we forgive up to seven times? He was being especially generous. And of course, we know what Jesus said in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That is, you are to keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Why should we forgive endlessly? And how do we forgive endlessly? Well, Jesus explains in a story he tells in the next verse, beginning with verse 23. Look at the story. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now let me give you the Reader's Digest version of what's going on here. There is a king who had a government, an administration, that was in financial trouble. They were spending more money than they were taking in. Sound familiar? Some things never change. But in this case, they couldn't simply print money. They had to call in all of the accounts receivable. The king had to get some cash flow going. So he called in all the people who owed him money, and he started with the person who owed him the most money. And it happened to be a slave who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a single talent was 60 to 80 pounds of gold. That was one talent. This slave owed him 10,000 talents. Even though gold is a little depressed today from what it was a few months ago, I did a calculation. If you calculated 10,000 talents, that would be around $16 billion. This slave owed $16 billion. Now, the natural question is, how in the world did a slave end up owing $16 billion? Did he go to Las Vegas too often? Or, you know, did he uh, max out his visa card or his wife max it out? How do you get into $16 billion worth of debt? Remember, this is a story Jesus is telling. It is a parable. It's an exaggeration. Jesus is saying, here is a slave who owed a king a debt he couldn't pay in 10,000 lifetimes. So, what happened? It was a legitimate debt that he owed. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And this king was very justified in doing that. The slave owed him a very real, not an imaginary debt. So, the king says, 
you're going into prison, and so is your family until repayment be made. Now look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground, and he prostrated himself before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Repay you everything? How would a slave repay a $16 billion debt? Is he going to say, King, you can take a little bit out of my check every week, and maybe I'll make it? There is no way he could ever pay that debt. So he begged, begged, please have a little patience with me. And look at the next verse. This hardened king felt compassion, and he released him, and he forgave him the debt. Even this hardened king was moved when he saw this slave begging for mercy. So what did he choose to do? He chose to let go of the debt. He chose to absorb the loss himself. Now, let me stop here and make the obvious application. The relationship between the king and the slave is a perfect picture of the relationship between God and us. The Bible says we have all sinned against God. And every time we sin against God, we owe God more and more for the sin that we've committed against him. Our sin debt keeps increasing and increasing and increasing every second of every day, with every wrong thought, every wrong motive, every wrong action, our sin debt keeps just spinning around. And we owe a debt to God now that we could never repay. And how pitiful, how stupid it is to think there's anything we could do to pay off that momentous debt. Now, Lord, be patient with me. Uh, I, I, I think I'll join the church. Surely that will pay off my debt. Or maybe I'll get up there in that baptistry and get wet. Surely that will erase the debt. Or maybe I'll try to be nicer than my neighbors are to one another, and maybe that will repay the debt. No, we all owe God a debt we could never repay in 10,000 lifetimes. We're deserving to be in hell forever, separated from God. And even there, we can't pay off the debt. But the good news of the gospel is God looked down on our situation. He felt compassion for us, and he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross and some of Jesus' final words, as you know, on the, church, on the cross, John 19, 30, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, literally, paid in full. That's what God did. He absorbed the loss himself by sending his son to die for us. Now, that is a very true truth in this passage. But this parable is not so much about God forgiving us as it is about our forgiving one another. And this is where the story takes an interesting turn. You know, Jesus' parables often took an unexpected turn, and they do here. Look at verse 28. But the slave, the one who had just been forgiven $16 billion, went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And he seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Now, a denarius was about 16 cents, one day's wage. Do your multiplication. A hundred denarii would be about $16. Now think about what had happened here. Here this slave, who has just been forgiven the $16 billion debt, 
He can't believe the relief he feels. And so he leaves the king's palace and he keeps rehearsing in his mind what he heard the king say to him, your debt is forgiven. Your debt is forgiven. Your debt is forgiven. And then the slave remembers, debt? Debt? Come to think of it, there's somebody who owes me some money as well. And so he goes out and finds a fellow slave who owes him $16. And he grabs him by the neck and begins to choke him and says, pay me, pay me, pay me. And what does the slave respond? What does he say? Look at verse 29. So the fellow slave fell to the ground and he began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? exactly what that first slave had said to the king. Have patience, and I will repay you everything. But unlike the king, this slave had no patience with his fellow slave. He was unwilling, verse 37, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And so then summoning him, the king said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the king moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. If the relationship between the king and the first slave represents God's relationship with us, then the relationship between the first slave and his fellow slave represents our relationship to other people, especially to those who wrong us. You see, when somebody wrongs you, they owe you a very real debt. Not an imaginary debt. They owe you a real debt. Offenses create obligations. When somebody wrongs you, they owe you. Jesus is not denying the wrongs that occur to you. He's not asking you to sweep them under the rug. He's simply saying, keep those hurts in perspective. Because the difference between how much somebody has hurt you and how much you have hurt God is the difference between $16 and $16 billion. That is what Jesus is saying. What does all of this have to do with forgiveness? I want to close tonight by sharing with you three principles about forgiveness. I hope you will write down, underline, and remember always. First of all, this parable reminds us that forgiveness is granted, not earned. It's granted, not earned. That is one of the biggest misconceptions about forgiveness, that I can't forgive till somebody earns my forgiveness. No. Think about this king and this first slave. Did the slave earn the king's forgiveness? No, it was impossible to earn the forgiveness. The king instead granted, unilaterally, he granted the slave's forgiveness. Why did he do that? 
Well, Jesus says because he felt compassion for him. That was certainly true, but I think there's another reason, an unspoken reason, the king forgave the slave. Because he realized he was holding a worthless IOU. That IOU said $16 billion, but the fact is, there's nothing that slave could ever do to repay $16 billion. So the king thought to himself, this ain't ever going to happen. I might as well let go of this and get on with my life. You know, the reason some of us have a hard time letting go of the wrongs people forget us is we don't realize we're holding a worthless IOU. You know, every time I see Brother Charles up here playing the piano, I think about, you know, did you know I'm an accordion player? You know, I grew up playing the accordion. In fact, I went through high school and college playing at weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals, everything in the world to make my money to go through school. And I was in college, I was at Baylor University, and I remember I had been booked one Saturday to go to some country club in Fort Worth and play for some dinner party. A band leader, a guy, and I remember his name still, hired me to join the band and play that weekend. And he was going to pay me $65 for that Saturday evening. Now, in 1976, $65 for a college student was a lot of money. So I went there, you know, unloaded my accordion, played for several hours, and went to collect my check. And the guy said, I left my checkbook at home. But I'll send you the check. I said, oh, okay, okay. I still remember the guy's name, Jimmy Ravito. And I said, okay, thank you, Mr. Ravito, thank you. And so I went home. I went to the mailbox Monday. Went Tuesday, no check. Wednesday, no check. So I call him up. Uh, Mr. Ravito, uh, uh, you probably forgot my check. Yeah, that's right. I forgot to put that check in there. I'm putting it in the mail today. Go back two days later, no check. This went on for several weeks. I was getting madder and madder and madder. Finally, <laughs> Never forget this one afternoon, I called the guy on the phone, and I was so mad, I used an expletive that I had never used before or never used since that time. I lost my verbal virginity for $65. I was so angry. But you know, as soon as I shocked myself by saying that word, the light came on in my mind. I realized I was a lot more concerned about that $65 than Jimmy Ravito was. I was obsessing about it. I was thinking about it. He never gave it a second thought. And I thought, do I want to be his prisoner for $65? And that day, I decided just to write it off and learn something from it instead of being obsessed and imprisoned to that $65. Listen to me, it's the same way with that debt you're holding on in your hands that somebody owes you. You may think there's something that person could do to make up for the hurt that they've done. Look, probably there's nothing they can do. I mean, think about it. What is it it that somebody could do to make up for a child killed by a drunk driver? Or what payment could somebody make for a marriage ruined by adultery? What payment could somebody make to you to restore a relationship that has been ruined by slander? The fact is, we are all holding worthless IOUs. Some people say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that I ought to forgive somebody if they never say I'm sorry? How can you do that? Well, Jesus told us in Mark chapter 11. 
He said, if you are in the temple praying and you remember you have something against somebody else. Now, this isn't the Matthew 5 passage where you remember somebody has something against you. If you remember somebody has something against you, you're to go be reconciled to that person, try to make it right. No, this is a case where you're sitting there in church one Sunday and you remember somebody you're ticked off with. You know what Jesus said to do? Forgive. Mark eleven thirty three. 33. Forgive. If you forgive, you don't have to hear I'm sorry from them. You forgive. It doesn't matter whether that person is in the next pew, the next state, or in the cemetery. You have the power to forgive them right then and there so that you can get on with your life. Let me press this one degree further. How many of you have ever been to an old-fashioned picnic where they had the three-legged races? Remember the three-legged races at the old-fashioned? You know, you'd tie yourself, your leg, to somebody else's leg and you would start jumping and hobbling, you know, together toward the finish line. And if you've ever been in a three-legged race, you know the feeling. You think, if this person could just get with it and run a little faster and further, we could win the contest. But you see, three-legged races don't allow for solo contenders. If you're in a three-legged race, you can go no faster or further than your partner is able to go. Now listen to me. When you make your forgiveness of somebody else dependent on what they do or don't do, you are binding yourself to that other person. You have become their prisoner. You can go no further in life than they're willing to go. Forgiveness is the process by which I free myself from that person who has hurt me so that I can be free to get on with my life. Look, forgiveness isn't denying something bad happened to you. It's not sweeping it under the rug. You know, I think about Joseph and his brothers who sold him into slavery. Remember when they had their final confrontation, Genesis, Genesis 45 to 50? What did Joseph do? He acknowledged the debt. He said, what you did was evil. You meant it for evil. He calculated the debt. They deserved prison for what they had done to their brother. But then he said, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Joseph acknowledged the debt, he calculated the debt, and he released his brothers of the debt. That's what forgiveness is. It is something you grant. It is not something you make other people earn. The second truth I find about forgiveness in this passage is refusing to forgive hurts us more than it hurts our offender. It hurts us more than it hurts our offender. You know, this first slave, when the king hauled him before him in the court and said, how could you not forgive? He sentenced him to be delivered over to the torturers until he should repay everything. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. Are you saying God is some sadist? And if I don't forgive, he's going to deliver me over to the torturers? I'm not saying that, but what I am saying, listen to me, is when you refuse to forgive, you enter your own private torture chamber. As you turn over in your mind that, that offense that was committed against you. I remember in a, my first church, Charles, that I pastored out in West Texas, there was a deacon who was a very good friend of mine when I first came. He was an officer in the church. But he got it in his mind I had done something to hurt him. 
And so I went to him. I knew about it. I went to him. I said, I am so sorry. I never intended that. And please, will you forgive me? He said, no, I will not forgive. And I went to him several times. Will you please forgive? No, I will not forgive. He used to work by himself out at a depot. And he would sit there all day by himself and turn that over and over until he became more and more bitter. Church leaders would go out and talk to him. He refused to forgive, to forgive until he finally fell away from the church. He had entered his own private torture chamber. That's what happens to you when you refuse to forgive. In his book, None of These Diseases, Dr. S.I. McMillan said, the moment I start hating a man, I become his slave. He even controls my thoughts. I can't escape his tyrannical grasp on my mind. When the waiter serves me steak, it might as well be stale bread and water. The man I hate will not permit me to enjoy it. My former professor and well-known Christian psychiatrist, Dr. Frank Minerith, said, pent-up anger is probably the leading cause of death in America today. Frederick Beekner has probably written some of the most insightful words about what refusing to forgive does to us. With tongue firmly planted in cheek, Beekner writes, of the seven deadly sin, anger is perhaps the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the bitter prospects of confrontations to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of both the pain you are giving and the pain you are getting back, why in many ways it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Refusing to forgive hurts us far more than it hurts our offender. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, forgiving others is the obligation of being forgiven. Forgiving, forgiving others is the obligation of being forgiven. Look at verse 31 again in Matthew 18, the climax of the story. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the king all that had happened. When these other slaves saw that this slave who had been forgiven $16 billion refused to give $16, they knew something wasn't right. Now, understand, they weren't Christians. They hadn't read the New Testament. But even they knew that there was something about being forgiven that obligates you to forgive somebody else. You see, there's an inseparable relationship between our receiving God's forgiveness and our forgiving other people. You can't separate the two. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness is the obligation of those who have been forgiven. Now, Paul said it positively. Jesus said it negatively. Look at verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus adds the zinger in verse 35. So shall my heavenly Father 
do to each of you if he does not forgive his brother from his heart? Jesus said virtually the same thing in Matthew 6, 14 to 15. But if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Could Jesus be any more clear? If you do not forgive, God will not forgive you. I hear people try to explain this away. Well, what Jesus really meant... No, what Jesus really meant was what Jesus really said. If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven by God. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. I just don't understand that. Are you telling me that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people? No. Ephesians 8, 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well then, Pastor, are you saying that if we don't forgive, we lose our salvation we receive by grace? I'm not saying that either. Romans eleven twenty nine: 29, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Well then, what are you saying? What is Jesus saying? What he's saying is simply this. If you say what I've heard so many times as a pastor, if you say, I will not forgive, I will not forgive, I will not forgive, it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means you never had it to begin with. Because when you really understand that tremendous debt, that God has forgiven you of, then the natural response is to forgive others of their relatively small debt. Forgiveness is the obligation of those who have been forgiven. Years ago, in my church in Wichita Falls, we invited for our guest speaker one day a lady named Dawn Smith Jordan. She was a former Miss South Carolina her dramatic story had been the basis for the CBS television movie Nightmare in Columbia County. Perhaps you know her story. When she was in high school, Dawn's younger sister, Sherry, was abducted from in front of their family home. They searched and searched for Sherry Smith. She was finally found. Her body had been brutally murdered. A day or so after the police had discovered her body, to their surprise, to their horror, Sherry Smith's parents, Dawn's sister's parents, received a letter in the mail, and the letter was from Sherry Smith, the girl who had been murdered. Her abductor had allowed her to write a letter to her family before he murdered her. And this is what she said in her letter a young 16-year-old girl, she said, Dear family, I know I'm about to die. But before I die, I want to send you this message. Dad, remember when Sherry and I, or Dawn and I were little girls, you used to put memory verses up on our bathroom mirror for us to memorize. One of those verses was Romans 8:28, And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Family, I'm going to heaven. Don't let my death ruin your life. Love, Sherry.
Shortly after that, they found her body. The discovery of her body led to the largest manhunt in South Carolina history as they looked for the killer of Sherry Smith. The FBI set up an outpost in the Smith home to see if there was any contact from the killer. The killer actually called the Smith family home on numerous occasions to taunt the parents, to describe how he had sadistically tortured their daughter before he murdered them. They had to listen to that. Finally, the killer was apprehended. He was sentenced to two life terms. And Sherry's sister Dawn told our congregation that day, when he was captured and finally sentenced, we thought our ordeal was finally over. Several years later, Dawn Smith went to the mailbox. She was flipping through the mail. She saw a letter addressed to her. And she recognized the address in the left-hand corner and the man's name. It was her sister's killer writing from prison. She said her hands trembled as she opened the envelope. She pulled out the letter, and this is what the letter said. Dear Dawn, I realize what I did to your sister was horrible, and I deserve to be right where I am. But since I've been in prison, I found Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I know he has forgiven me of what I did. What I'm asking is, will you forgive me for what I did to your sister? And Dawn Smith told our congregation immediately, God brought to her mind another one of those scripture verses their father had put on the bathroom mirror. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. She said, it didn't come easily, but I knew I had no choice. Given what God had done for me as a Christian, I had no choice but to forgive my sister's killer. Listen to what God is saying to you tonight. I think since I started this message, God has brought to your mind the name of somebody who has wronged you. Listen, God's not asking you to deny that hurt. He's asking you to let go of that hurt not because that person deserves to be forgiven or even they've asked to be forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And as Lewis Mead says, a wonderful thing happens. When we forgive, we set the prisoner free. And the prisoner we set free is us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask, please, no one to leave right now for any reason at all. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. I do believe God has brought to your mind perhaps somebody you need to forgive. You know, it's impossible to give away something you haven't received yourself. And if you have found it impossible to forgive, Maybe the most important thing you could do is to receive God's forgiveness in your life so that you can forgive others. And maybe tonight you understand that your sin is great. It's like that $16 billion debt you owe God. Maybe you realize you could never, never repay that debt. But that's why Christ came, to forgive you of the debt we could never repay. 
just a moment, Charles is going to be here at the front. And tonight, if you would like to receive the forgiveness God offers you by trusting in Jesus Christ, that invitation is for you. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your punishment. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. And tonight, I'm trusting in him to save me, to forgive me of my sins. That's the first invitation. But I realize most here tonight have already received God's forgiveness. The question is, have you extended that forgiveness to others? I believe God has brought to your mind, many of your minds tonight, somebody who has wronged you, a family member, a friend, a business associate. Maybe that person is still in your life. Maybe they've moved out of your life. Maybe they've passed away. But you desire to be free from that hurt that keeps coming in waves and affecting your life. The only way to find freedom is through forgiveness. And so tonight, if you're ready to let go of that hurt from the past so that you can be free to get on with your life, I want to invite you, where you are right now, to pray this prayer to God, would you?